Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us listening today and happy to have you guys here with me as well. Morning, Brian. Morning, Brad. And Bob. Good morning. Dustin. Good morning. And Philip. Good morning, Brad. Happy to have you joining us. And we've got some great topics to discuss today. We're going to talk about what should I do if my bull didn't pass his BSE or his breeding soundness exam. We're also going to talk about some consumer interest in local beef, get Dustin's perspective on what that means for you and what it could mean for people in your community, as well as answer a listener question on synchronization and natural service. Before we get into those topics, just before the show, producer Grace was telling a joke and Philip thought it was funny, but none of the rest of us, well, Dustin laughed a little, but the rest of us didn't laugh, Philip. I wonder why. Let's, let's find out. <laughs> so what's the difference between a veterinarian and God? Yeah. I don't know. We'll bite. Hardly bite. anything. Yeah. Even God doesn't think he's a nutritionist. <laughs> <laughs> As told by a nutritionist. <laughs> So before we get into our topics, a couple things to mention. If you have uh, questions or thoughts or issues you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always email us at bci at ksu.edu, or you can reach out to us at the underscore BCI on Twitter. And, and I'd like to talk about a couple things. One, Bob, we haven't had an introduction from you, so let's start there. Tell us a little bit about you. All right. Well, I, I grew up in Northeast Kansas and came to K-State to do my undergraduate in vet school. And kind of from there, I, I actually spent some time in private practice. I actually practiced in Illinois for a little while, not too far from where Dustin and Philip grew up. So we have, I, I know those towns that they're talking about. And then I practiced a little while in central Kansas, came back and did a PhD in the animal science department here at K-State, and then was on the faculty at the University of Missouri for 10 years. Uh, prior to coming to K-State, I did a veterinary extension work at Mizzou and traveled all over the state, got to learn all the great restaurants and all the great places to stop because as an extension person, you spend a lot of time in the car uh, driving to places. So then I came back here to K-State and I've been back at K-State for 16 years or so and do research and teaching, do a fair amount of teaching for vet schools and vet students and grad students and do some research with all the guys in this room plus some others. And your wife is also a veterinarian. My wife is a veterinarian. We have three daughters, which is kind of fun because around this group, you know, we seem to be single sex parents a lot. There's there's several faculty with all boys and several faculty with all girls and then a few with a, a nice mixture. And, and it is kind of fun to share stories because my household stories with three girls growing up is a little different than Dr. White's with four boys. Yeah. Uh, we, not a lot never, of overlap. When you told me the story of how it was a big deal the day before the first day of school to get your outfit ready, mm -hmm. that does not happen at all. It's, it's, it's more, uh, what can I pick off the floor that morning and then I'm out the door. <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah, it's all good, all good stuff. Excellent. And Dustin, I, w I wanted to hear about, you went on a trip recently, went to New York, and, and it was all about animal health disease and talking about different aspects. Tell, tell us what you learned on your trip. Yes. So, uh, you know, going from Little Apple to Big Apple, first time there, what you'd expect, lots of people, lots and lots of traffic. Uh, we met downtown, had a talking about a project I've been working on for about a year and a half now called the Global Burden of Animal Disease. It's been unfortunate because I haven't been able to travel to get together in person, and so it's been a little rough trying to, to collaborate with folks. But finally, we got to meet face to face, kind of update where we're at, what we're doing. We're doing some case studies in various countries. And in fact, we're going to kick off a case study here in the U.S. trying to look at the global, or not global, but I guess the burden of, of poultry diseases, specifically the broilers industry here in the U.S. But the, the, the big overarching theme is, you know, a lot of times, 
when countries will invest in animal health, they invest in maybe foot and mouth because that's what some of the researchers know and that's what they advocate for. Other diseases will invest in because people might think it's an issue. But what we're trying to do is figure out all the different diseases, the impacts of all the diseases and put it all together. So then if go back to the, the whoever the animal health officials are making the decisions on where to optimize their resources, where to allocate those limited resources. And that's the, that's the whole the gist of the whole project. That, that is really cool because that is not typically how we allocate research dollars by looking at the big picture. We look at small glimpses of the picture. That's awesome that you guys are doing that. Yep. Nope. That's, and that's the whole idea. You know, it's, the project itself is coming up here at the end of, end of December, but we're going back in for another renewal for five more years of continuing efforts. Excellent. I, I applaud that because I think that is very useful as we look at the, the whole picture and I'm sure you'll get to the cattle stuff and some of the other areas. So we'll, we'll expect updates as you go through that, that process. So excellent. Glad you had a, glad you had a good trip. I want to switch topics and, and we had some follow-up discussion last week. We were talking about BSEs, breeding soundness exams and bulls. And we we're talking about what are the components? What are some of the things that are part of that process? And, and afterwards, then we started talking about, okay, what if they don't pass the BSE? So Bob, I'm going to turn to you first and go, I take my bull in before breeding season and he doesn't pass the BSE. What do I do now? All right. Well, maybe I'm going to back up just a little bit further and say, well, how, how likely is that? And, you know, across, you know, every situation is different, but across all bulls, about 20% of mature bulls won't pass their BSE on the day that they are examined. And on yearling bulls, it depends a lot on age. For fairly young bulls right around that 12 months of age, it can be much higher than 20% don't pass at that time. Well, uh, and, and in the mature bulls, it, it is not the same across the entire age spectrum. There's kind of a sweet spot in the yes. big middle area, and then you get to be old Good and point. things go downhill. <laughs> and you're looking at I, me. I, <laughs> I'm not making any implications here. No, you're but you did hear me say Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, you're exactly right. You know, those, those bulls that are three or four years of age um, are probably more likely to pass. Yeah. And very young bulls right around that yearling age and older bulls as they start to have some musculoskeletal problems and you know anything else that can accompany old age so you're right it's not evenly distributed but it's not that also means it's not uncommon so now brian will get, jump in on this i think pretty soon the, the difference is and the, and the reason that it's really you have to think through why did the bull fail because some of the reasons that a bull fail are pretty temporary you know, they come through a hard winter, they've lost a little weight, maybe they've gotten ill, something like that. That can, that can make them fail a breeding soundness exam because they wouldn't get very many cows bred over the next few days, next few weeks. In contrast, and, but that bull may get better as he puts on some body condition, you know, he gets back to full form. Then his semen quality improves and he, and he looks pretty good. Some minor musculoskeletal problems are pretty easy to fix and, and they can come back pretty quick. Other problems, either the bull will never really return to breeding soundness, or it may be months, in which case, usually we're doing a breeding soundness exam close to the time that we're ready to turn bulls out, and him being better in three or four months isn't useful for the short term. So you do really need to talk to your veterinarian. Not all failures are equal. There are some failures like, well, let's test him again in three weeks and see if he's ready to go. Others, it's like, we're going to need to do some, some therapy for a while and then give him more time before we recheck him. Yeah, I, I agree with Bob. I think, you know, as far as general advice, what you do with a bull, if he didn't pass the BSE, 
there's a, a list of questions that I would have to answer before I could say, do this or do this, right? So Bob mentioned the age of the bull. You know, his genetic value probably makes a difference on whether I want to hang with him or not if he didn't pass. The, you know, things like seminal vesiculitis, which is an infection in the reproductive tract, or foot rot, or pink eye, you know, those are bacterial infections. We can try to treat those, and, and he may pass his BSE in just a few weeks, right, if we can get that cleared up and he's ready to go. Um, the other thing that I always like to know if, if I have the information is if it's a if it's a mature bull, what did he look like last year? Was he marginally passing his breeding soundness exam last year and now he's failing? Or And, and we mentioned last time that, you know, it's a pass-fail test, right? But there are some indicators that we kind of know, are we close to the line or are we clearly above the line? And so if he was close to the line and now he's failing, he's probably just marginal in whatever that, whether it's semen quality or whatever, and maybe it's time to make a different decision with him. So it's it's probably not one or two things. I mean, it's usually one or two things that relate to him not passing, but there's a lot of other questions that you need to answer before you say, okay, it's it's time to move on to a different bull or let's try to manage him through. But like many things in life, it's timing is critical. So if I test him right before the breeding season, I'm going to argue it doesn't matter why he didn't pass. I may want to keep him and work on him, but I need another bull to do it. So so I have recommended in the past, you want to test your bulls as close to breeding season as you can while still allowing you time to get a replacement if you need one, right? Which that could be, and I've had people... We're testing him on Friday, and he's going to the pasture on Monday. And if I have to, I can find another bull over the weekend. Or some people go, I want to test him six or eight weeks in advance, so I've got time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and again, it's all about this conversation that you have with your veterinarian. Because I think if your veterinarian says this bull fails, I think it's make sure you understand what's the prognosis. What's the likelihood that he's going to uh, get better in the short term, in the long term. And so make sure you've asked more questions and you really understand because I would hate to see a bull that will be fine in a few weeks sent to slaughter. And I would hate to have somebody hang on to a bull that's not likely to breed any cow soon just in that small hope that he will. I mean, I, I want to make sure that we've understood each other when we say he fails, what the really the future looks like. Yeah, because as Brian said, it's a pass-fail test. But some failures are worse than others, right? Yeah, some failures are, I'll, I'll bet he'll be good soon. And by soon, I usually mean in a month, you yeah. know, something like that. And, and I'll just, I, I said foot rot earlier. So foot rot's a great example, right? If I have a bull that walks in for a breeding soundness exam limping because of foot rot, he is not going to pass. I, I cannot pass him as a veterinarian, but I also know if I treat him with an antimicrobial, it is highly likely he will be better and be better very quickly, maybe not Friday and Monday turnout, but probably within a couple weeks. So that that's a clean example of one where he didn't pass, but I have high expectations he would in the short term. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's important to consider how you failed and how I just sit here th and probably because I've got teenage boys, I'm going, this is kind of like a driver's test, right? You could fail by not being able to quite parallel park, or you could hit something big while you're on your driver's test, in which yeah. case you're far away from driving. Like you're not, no, we're not getting <laughs> yeah. a license. <laughs> exactly. Does that, does that fit, Brian? Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> so Dustin, I wanted to get your opinion. There was a story that came out and there was a survey done here at K-State by some of the folks that, that looked at 
the likelihood of consumers buying locally raised beef. And it focused here on Kansas operations, but I wanted to get your perspective, and I know Philip's got some insight on this as well. So, yeah, looking through some of the, the, the – there's a short news article post on the web, which we can put in the show notes, talking about kind of the, the objective. This was a funded research project by the USDA, and they're really wanting to look at this idea of, uh, you know, buying local beef, raising local beef, selling it for the producers. And I think it comes back to the profitability, the margins. And, and the, the, I think the idea is, hey, if I can cut out all the middleman, I get more, more of those margins. And I think that's true. There are some opportunities, but just note those benefits. There are some additional costs that one needs to think about and keep in the back of their mind. You have to do some of the jobs the middleman was doing. You're going to have to do all those jobs, the middleman. So you got to think about, okay, what's, you know, do you have time to do that? What's your experience with that? You know, there's trade-offs. And so finding the customers, maybe you've put some ads on Facebook or on various social media platforms. So maybe that isn't a challenge. And, and will they be repeat customers, or are they going to come in and try you once and then go away? Because I'd, I'd sure like, if I'm going to do that effort, I'd, I'd like to find some repeat customers. Yeah, no, and that's that would be another issue. Uh, they noted some other difficulties with, uh, you know, keeping track of all the costs. They said most of these are cash expenses and just, you know, you got to have an accounting software to track all this if you really want to know if you're actually making uh, funds. Some other issues they said that you might be overestimating the profitability. Uh, again, coming back to this cash versus kind of accrual accounting. Some other concerns that was noted in the surveys were some of the customers thought they were unexpected costs. They didn't know that. Some of the, the cuts, the yields were lower than what they expected and all these other kind of issues where at the end of the day, it was the producer had to lower the price. The producer had to offer more product. The producer had to mm, keep that customer happy. Yep. And so those are just, I guess, think about all the possible things that could come out of that. So well, you'd buying sure. buying half a beef is different than buying just the cuts you want at the grocery. Like if I'm in the mood for a roast or I'm in the mood for a steak. Well, early on, once you first get to half beef, have whatever you want. Yep. <laughs> but yep. at some point, you shall run out of some. Yeah. So, so my, my story is when I was in college, my parents were very generous, very great, and because we, we butchered our own cattle. And, but my whole time in college, I had freezer full of cube steak. My parents were happy to unload. Did I get the steaks? Uh, no, I didn't. Yeah, you got so, cube steak. Got it cube says steak. steak right on the label. That's... <laughs> and, and, a, and a calf actually makes a lot of cube steak. I, who knew? <laughs> you did. And Philip, you've you've had you said some of your families had some experience with this. Yeah, so I've got close knowledge of a couple different situations. So one is family that they f sell locker beef and so or freezer beef, and so they've got their system set up where they're calving two three times a year to try to keep their supply even throughout the year. They've got a a, a local processing plant there, or house, you know, family owned that does it for them, and. They, they're close to a large metropolitan area that lets them find a good customer base. And so and they sell it on a carcass basis. So they sell to the, a price per pound of carcass to the consumer, and then the consumer pays the processing charge and gets it cut up however they want and, and that kind of stuff. And so they don't have to deal with kind of the, the processing and marketing individual cuts and all that kind of stuff afterward. They're just you know selling the whole half carcass or quarter carcass or whatever. And the other situation was... They were 
trying to sell it through a local retail market. And so they were handling all the processing themselves. They had all the processing charges. They were deciding on how to cut it up to, to be able to market it through the retail outlet. And so they had all of those steps and all those decisions, had to keep track of all the different cuts and how to price all the different cuts and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that I saw there, and you know, in the beef industry, we don't market all the cuts through the retail outlet, okay? And so it was hard to market roasts. It was hard to market all the steaks. Well, they ended up grinding some more high-dollar cuts into hamburger because hamburger is what sold the most. So to keep the hamburger supply there, they had to grind stuff that would have been worth more in a different form. And so that, those are some things I've seen that can make or break one of these operations. Absolutely. And you've you got to think through that part of the process all the way to the end of who's going to be my customer. And, and Dustin, that's what, you, that's what you said is those are some of the challenges that if you skip some of those steps, there is higher profit potential. Absolutely. But you've got to do some of those jobs. Right. No. And then I think in that last example, Philip was saying, if you can get enough animals where then you can start thinking, okay, I'm going to maybe export some of this and enough that to a different country that will actually buy that product, you know, that, that demands that product. Yeah, or, or even at time of year, right? So if you calve once a year, and I know some folks that do this, you calve once a year and you've got freezer beefs available roughly once a year, right? You can't, you can't supply customers throughout the year, which a lot of times is workable. Because, Brian, that's, that's what you said. Big freezer, you can solve that problem by holding the inventory in your house. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bob mentioned it. We do it, too. We eat a lot of freezer beef, right? And so I actually last fall made a 11 o'clock trip to Walmart because I realized I didn't have enough freezer space for the half a beef that was in my basement. So we've got an extra four cubic foot freezer. So, I mean, and then you just work through it, right? And that, But that's a different mentality. I think it's it's a much different mentality than going to the store and picking exactly what I want. So, yeah, absolutely. So last last topic I want to get to, and I want to touch on this one because I think it's a really good question from a listener. And there's, there's two components to it. W- one they have an extended calving season and they're thinking about synchronizing the cows and they were exposed to synchronization through some heifers that they purchased but they're thinking about synchronizing the cows but don't necessarily want to ai so their plan or their idea was can we synchronize our cows and then expose them to natural service because we always talk about sync and ai together so i'll start with that question Mm -hmm. well actually i i kind of like that as again another tool in the toolbox is the synchronization but then using natural service bulls the difference is when we talk about synchronizing cows or heifers to prepare them for artificial insemination my goal is to have it all of the heifers in heat and ovulating like within hours of each other Whereas if I did that and I'm expecting bulls to cover the cows, um, the bulls wouldn't get them all bred. I mean, you just couldn't get it all done. And so we don't synchronize them as tightly. So my goal is not necessarily to have all the cows coming into heat and ovulating in a few hours, but a few days. So are there tweaks available to the program that you can do that? Yeah. And again, I don't want to give too many details because it's, you know, you have to think it through, but talk to your veterinarian. And, but yes, it's basically we're using a either progesterone or possibly just prostaglandin, but we're not using the combination protocols that use both prostaglandins and progesterone and GnRH. We, we don't use all three of the, the Bottom line, steps. it's not the same sync it's, program. It, it looks similar, but it's not the same. Yeah. And it can work. It's something to think about. 
but I would still pick the cows that are likely to respond. So again, the cows that calve in the first 30 days are the ones that are the best bet to have kind of a synchronization and have them ready for the bulls. All right, Philip. Well, so I had a, a question, Bob. So when I thinking about our um, synchronization in AI, one of the big advantages is being able to use semen from a bull that is su genetically superior to what I can purchase mm -hmm. and, and more cost effective what I can purchase on a lot on the hoof. And so is that does that extra cost of synchronization pay off when I'm going to use a bull that's not as genetically superior? Well, guess what? I've got a spreadsheet. And, and basically it says that, again, if I, if, <laughs> if I use this synchronization protocol on a group of cows that are very likely to respond, so those that calved early, it, it's, it's a sm slight economic advantage. And I get some rollover, what I call momentum, so that now the cows are going to calve early next year. And, and so there's some rollover momentum. If I apply it to a group of cows that aren't likely or are poorer bets, now some of them do respond, but they're not as good a bet, then I put a cost into a cow that's not as likely to benefit from it because I'm capturing all the benefit in the age of the calf at weaning and kind of this roll forward year to year thing. So there's not as many benefits, not as many costs, but you still need to kind of think through whether, and that's why I think it's a great tool in the toolbox, but I don't grab it every time. So, hey, Brian, I wanted to ask you, Part of this question was, how many bulls would I put out there? So what, what would be some of your thoughts that as you think about the number of bulls, if I sink them and I'm planning on breeding them? Yeah, and I, I was going to get us back to the original question, too, because one of the points of the question was, is it possible to do multiple sinking windows? So taking the herd and, and this in this particular li listener question, their current calving window is very long. And so I think their goal is to shrink that down. And so is it possible to do maybe multiple staggered sinks to, to start crunching that long window down into something that's more manageable? And so, so I'll answer the question, I guess. So, you know, for a situation like this, maybe one bull per 20 to 30 cows sounds reasonable to me. And if you have staggered windows, that's probably okay. I, I don't, based on the way this question is written, I don't think it's even possible for them to sink the whole herd this year. It, their, their window last year was way too long. Not everybody's going to sink. So I, I think that's probably okay. If this were somebody that had maybe a 90-day window last year and they were trying to get it down to a 45, which is more doable, I might up my bull recommendation. Um, but I, your, your bull recommendation is based on how many cows do I think they're going to be breeding over a short period of time? And it combines with what Bob said, which is I'm not going to use the same sync program as if I was doing timed AI where I want them to come in heat within an hour. Right. Because then exactly. the bull just, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But no. there are good sync programs for natural service and you can put them in play, but you've got to make sure, and both of you have said, make sure the cows are cycling, yeah. right? Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, so I'll even, I'll, I'll give even Philip a little bit of a credit here is so it's when did they calve and at what body condition did they calve in so it's it's you know you can't f so synchronization I really like this technology but it doesn't fix problems it doesn't fix cows that are thin it doesn't fix a calving season that's really long it can be one tool to help over several years kind of get the herd in better shape but it's it it doesn't work that well it's it's a great tool but it works best when it's kind of the rich get richer in a herd that's really fertile and front end loaded and oh, it works great. 
if a herd's got a lot of problems, it's not going to work nearly as well. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate you guys have shared several of those thoughts. And this is a good opportunity to take, take a step back and plan what that herd's going to look like in the future. As always, we, we really enjoy getting those listener questions and having you reach out to us. And you can always either reach out to us on Twitter at the underscore BCI, or you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.